We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel, a podcast about all things rock art. Send us your suggestions. Hello and welcome to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 12 with Dr. Alan Garfinkel. Today, the good doctor interviews Rick Coleman about geoglyphs. From small to massive stone structures, geoglyphs are amazing and Rick Coleman has done some great research on them. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. Well, hello out there in podcast land. This is uh, your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, host of the Rock Art Podcast here on the Archaeology Podcast Network. I'm the founder and president of the California Rock Art Foundation. It's my honor to continue to uh, do these episodes with some illustrious keynotes. If you uh, care to learn more about us, the California Rock Art Foundation, it's carockart.org. And... Also, we're always interested in other guests, so if you find this podcast of interest and want to reach me, telephone number is 805-312-2261 or avram, A-V-R-A-M, 1952 at yahoo.com. And with that, I'd like to introduce our guest for today on the 12th podcast we've done on the Rock Art Podcast. His name is Rick Coleman. Rick, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you. Well, Rick, Rick Coleman is going to share uh, his odyssey in terms of his adventures with all things anthropology, archaeology, and rock art, and then we'll lead that into uh, providing a basis for his current research, which I'm sure you will find absolutely fascinating, and he has recently uh, gone about documenting the giant ground figures that exist on both sides of the Colorado River 
uh, in California and I believe in Arizona. And those are what's called in archaeological terminology in rock garden as geoglyphs. So, Rick, how did you get started in your passion for all things rock art, anthropology, and archaeology, might I ask? Well, first of all, let me uh, thank you for letting me get on this podcast. Oh, God. God bless you. Chance. I'm honored. I'm honored that you made it on. We've They've been asking and asking for someone who knows something about these giant ground figures. And I said, well, that's Rick Coleman. So here you are today. Well, knowing something may be uh, exaggerating a little bit, but I'm <laughs> pleased to be passing on some misinformation. Uh, <laughs> Great. I'm... I'm not a professional. Uh, these guys are. And they made rock art and archaeology a passion. For me, it's been more of an avocation. I guess I might call myself a rock art nut, but I would never do that. And I've been uh, chasing after the rabbit, so to speak, the rock art rabbit, since about 1997, 1998. What brought you into that field to begin with? You know, it's kind of like lost in the mists of time. I don't remember why I was interested in rock art. But as uh, Carl Bjork once said, that it's rock art's infect some people, excuse the expression nowadays. Yeah. And after they see some rock art, they become so fascinated they can't let it go. And it becomes an obsession. And there are a small group of us who uh, are indeed obsessed and looking around for other opportunities. I started out by trying to visit every possible rock art site in Southern California and around there and started acquiring a lot of photographs and started going afield and going into Arizona and into the Eastern Sierra. And after a number of years, I had a huge compendium of rock art photographs and uh, visits and locations and logs and so forth. Do you have favorites that you've uh, experienced? And if so, what tugs at your heart vis-a-vis -vis your experience there? Why are you photographing these uh, images and what what did you learn by those photographs or what really provided you the impetus to capture those images? Well, you know, when you look at rock art as a non-professional, I don't see an analytical portrait. I see the mind of an ancient person trying to communicate with his fellows and perhaps maybe, maybe even to the future. And so what I looked at when I started looking at these was I was fascinated more by the anthropomorphs, by the human figures, oftentimes stick figures, and by the very, very old archaic abstract kind of figures, which are totally mysterious. There's a lot of those abstracts in uh, part of the Mojave and uh, into Arizona. And there's a bunch of uh, later anthropomorphs, which are fascinating. And, and, what, and what is an anthropomorph? Anthropomorph is a, is a representation of a human being, usually a stick figure. And uh, probably the most famous of them are over in Coso with the shamans and so forth. But uh, they do represent people. Or they represent shamans. Or maybe they represent the spirit of a person or a shaman. It's hard to say. Yeah. So you were you were fascinated, or my, might I say, obsessed with with human <laughs> human figures, correct? Or you, or even animal human figures. Sometimes there's there's a there's a conflation between the two, correct? Yes, there is, and you wonder what that's supposed to mean. It was again, it was the very old archaic figures that are totally mm -hmm. abstract and, and uh, non-representational, and then later in time, it was the figures of representing people that were very fascinating. When it came to animals, or what they call zoomorphs, there's been a lot of discussion about that as being hunting magic or attempts to uh, impact the spiritual world. For some reason, those didn't talk to me that well, but it was the human figures that really talked to me. And so the human figures you seem to have a connection with personally or through some sort of spiritual association. What made you feel spiritual about these rock art images? What provided you with that insight about the 
maybe the uh, ritual or sacred or spiritual nature of these human figures? It's kind of funny because I'm basically not a spiritual person. Okay. I tend to be a very objective kind of, uh, you know, my, my profession was engineering and that's the way I looked at things. And yet I was oddly drawn to these figures because they were trying to communicate to us. And I'm not sure if anyone actually really knows what they're supposed to be communicating. There are theories and so forth, but they spoke to me in some manner. I was actually going to use uh, some of those figures uh, for a book cover, which never happened. Give me some sort of a, an understanding of how you were able as a dilettante, as an avocationalist, to learn the locations and the, the general settings of these rock art sites. How did you, I know that sometimes they're very uh, secret. They're only allowed to be identified by professionals. They guard the site records and the locations. How are you able, Rick, to sort of get into that particular element? There's a secret cabal of people who I shouldn't even mention at this point, who uh, are rock art aficionados, avocational archaeologists, call them what you will, and they try and accumulate information about locations. And professionals, of course, have taken sworn oaths to not reveal anything, and there's actual federal regulations. And the, uh, the casual, what do you call it, not quite a tourist, tourist in a positive sense, uh, is not that interested, but for several of us, a number of us, we'd like to be able to visit sites that have not been visited by others, that are remote, that are untouched, that uh, are not sullied by damage. And those locations are hard to come by, but it's kind of like a fraternity or a sorority. You get into that group and you promise you're never going to reveal that stuff and you take care of it. You don't publish anything, no locations, and you kind of pass it on to the next generation or whatever. Those locations are important because in some cases, the actual state preservation offices, for example, in New Mexico, have uh, information about sites they can't find anymore. And they would occasionally uh, ask us to go out and try and locate these sites and relocate them. So the site information is the currency. It's the tender. It's what's of value. So if you can't find a site, you can't look at it. You can't photograph it. You can't do anything. So that information is extremely important and extremely well-guarded. So I guess there's a group of people that I discovered or learned about being an academician. I call them rock art explorers <laughs> who, who like to spend their weekends and every available moment uh, relocating, discovering, or somehow capturing the images of these rock art sites. So I guess you might fit within that particular classification, correct? It's a sickness. It's I'm a not, sickness. You know, the, uh, we would get together, we'd, maybe six, seven, eight people, and we would chart out a course and we would put aside maybe five, six days and we would go down to these areas and we would find them and we would camp near them and we would photograph them and keep on going. And we perhaps would cover maybe a thousand miles in the course of a week and a half or so. And yet everyone trusted everyone else. No one's going to publish anything. Nothing would be revealed, but we would along with looking at them and perhaps adding some images, we'd also look at them and try and discover whether there's been any recent uh, damage or any problems with them. So in a sense, we were informal site stewards. So you'd be looking at the condition assessment to see what sort of natural or even environmental damage might have been occurring to these sites. So you would help in their management. Would you provide that information or would that be something that you would give to some of the oversight agencies or would you update site records? How, what would you do? I'll give you an example. Uh, at one point, we were at a location near Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is fairly well known. And up on the hill, there was a shaman's cave. And there was some recent 
painting, graffiti that had gone on next to, luckily not actually over the petroglyphs, and someone had left a uh, spray can in the bushes not too far away. And personally, I was terrified they'd come back the next night and do some more spray painting. So I, I called the local BLM office and told them what was going on. They promised to get a law enforcement officer out there as quickly as possible. But, you know, um, damage to rock art is not real high on the list of criminal activities when people are getting, uh, other things are happening. And, and they're all understaffed. So I hung out there, went back there two, two and a half days in a row to try and make sure that A, nothing had been moved, and B, there wasn't more damage. And finally, the gentleman showed up and took a report and so forth. And that, that may have been a little extreme, and I was actually living close by, so it wasn't that hard to do. But a lot of us feel a very, uh, a duty, let me say, to make sure that this stuff survives intact and keeps on for the, keeps on surviving for a while. So yes, the, answer, the, long, the short answer to that long, my long discussion is, when we could, we would contact the land manager I tell them what's going on and ask them if they could, could help in any way. But we were not official site stewards in that regard. We were just kind of helping out. In a passing reference, you were talking about visiting the site and spending quite a few days there awaiting sort of the authorities to protect the site. And you mentioned that this might have been a shaman's cave. Could you help me understand what a shaman is and why you might possibly interpret at one level that this might be a place for shamans or shamanic activity and what that means. Well, Dr. Gold, you are the expert in that area, certainly, so you're in a better position than I am. But in, in that regard, it looked like it was a place that had been occupied for a while. There were some uh, petroglyphs on the outside of the cave, close to the entrance. There was some evidence of some paint, pictographs on the inside. There was also some burn marks from fires that had taken place. And most likely from, let me say, cowboys or settlers that come afterwards to use that as a shelter. This is maybe 50 yards up the side of the hill. We had a good path, but fairly vertical. And you could imagine that there was a village site or habitation site near a creek not too far away. And that the shaman to, I think, and you'll have to correct me on this one, to preserve their authority and their supernatural powers within the community would find a location where they would hang out and do their thing, trying to contact the underworld or the next world. What specific images did you see in that particular cave, both from petroglyphs and pictographs? Paint us a word picture, if you would. Well, I'm not sure I remember them all that well. What I do remember yeah. is going up there with a backpack with uh, some ammonia and, and, and some water and a couple of large toothbrushes and sitting there trying to scrape the paint away from the areas that had not been... Uh, actually painted into the uh, petroglyphs. Any of the paint that got into the grooves, they hired professionals to go in and do that. But if there was some paint or other markings that were not too close to the actual rock art, we would try to help out by getting rid of some of that stuff. But you know, you never get rid of all of it. There's always a little bit of paint lying there in the, in the rocky substrate, and you just can't get it all. It's kind of a shame. What organizations did you find were most beneficial to you in terms of sort of developing these relationships you needed to to find others who are kindred spirits in rock art? Well, first of all, the California Rock Art Foundation has been a, uh, a really great organization. And finally, you guys have put together something for Californians so we don't have to go out of state to Utah or someplace else to participate. So that's been good. In a less formal sense, there was no formal organization. We knew each other. And if you want to get involved with that kind of thing, you had to go through some sort of informal vetting process to make sure that you weren't going to reveal information that we considered sensitive. 
Now, how did you meet these people? How did you know them previously? Who, who, just two word of mouth contacts. Word of mouth. Yeah. yeah. So I guess so, just by these contacts, are they people who have a background in any of these? Are they full-time avocationalists? Or are they people who just have a passion? I think both. One one fellow is uh, what, 74, 75 years old and still get hill a lot faster than I can. There were several of those people. They tend to be a little bit older nowadays, which is a little depressing because I wish I would see some more younger people get involved. But, you know, they're working. They have a family. They got things to do. They'll show up sooner or later. I see. And are these trips typically driving trips or are they hiking trips or a combination of both? And how does that work out in terms of? I haven't been on one for a while and there haven't been any for a while, which is a little yeah. distressing. But uh, typically there was the contingent of hikers and they would like, they get out there and they would get to spots and locations that you couldn't get a vehicle to. And there was a people like me who like to drive close and then not have to work too hard. And so it was all over the map. Uh, a lot of them are monster hikers that I do cover a lot of. Yeah, ground. some of the A1 hikers. So you've done this kind of activity in California, in the American Southwest, in New Mexico, uh, perhaps parts of the Great Basin as well? I've probably been in 10 Western states. Oh, my word. And Baja and in the UK for some extent. <laughs> and uh, I used to say, I think I've, I think I've visited more than 500 sites. I used to say I could remember every single one of them. Oh, my but word. maybe not so much now. <laughs> I'm going to have to write things down. Well, so, we, got a, um, we got a minute remaining before this segment. Okay. G- give me one of the highlights of one of your favorite or most favorite or extraordinary uh, visits. How's that? I think going down to Horseshoe Canyon, which is an extension of the parks in Utah, where they have some giant figures painted on the sides of the canyon walls. It was both a monster hike down and a very beautiful area. And that was probably one of the most impressive areas I've seen. Except that you had to walk out at the end, which is not so great. But anyway, <laughs> that was <laughs> that was one of my favorites. So the hike was treacherous, and you got down there, and you saw these magnificent figures. Are sure. they pa- paintings or petroglyphs? Oh, they were pictographs, and they uh, and wasn't that treacherous. It was well marked. It was just it was like a four hundred or five hundred foot elevation gain. And what about the colors? What colors were they? In pretty good shape because you know they were uh, in overhangs, slightly uh-huh. overhung, and they uh-huh. they had weathered well. Appeared like. That's- Fantastic. Well, that's it for this first segment. And uh, in the next segment, we're going to talk about some of Rick Coleman's current undertakings with respect to his adventure and his journey into the giant geoglyphs along the Colorado. See you on the next segment. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30 off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart you've worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. So it's your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, back again. Like a bad penny, I keep showing up. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm back here with uh, Rick Coleman. And this is episode 12 of your rock art podcast. And in this particular segment, we're going to ask Rick to uh, unfurl his reflections on how he uh, developed a, a project to uh, further investigate and describe and assess the uh, nature and character of what's called the giant uh, gravel figures or geoglyphs along the Colorado. Rick, why don't you uh, get us started maybe with uh, explaining to the audience in uh, podcast land what a geoglyph is and, and explain to them uh, about the character of a landscape with respect to uh, the presence of these figures. I think you wouldn't be surprised that most people don't know that they even exist. Well, let me digress very briefly, if I may, before please, I please, your, go your right geoglyph thing. So 10 years have gone by and I've got all these pictures. I'm getting slightly bored. Yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? Add another site, another <laughs> 244th site that no one cares uh -huh. about? So uh, I thought to myself, well, what would be different, new and different? Well, why don't we try taking some pictures of some of these sites in the evening, at night, when the Milky Way well, he festoons the sky? And so I decided to, and I think I may have been the first person to do this, mm -hmm. uh, I decided to try and find some rock art panels that were facing exactly the right direction. They have to generally face north. And then try and find the Milky Way rising above the rock art panel at just the right time. Mm -hmm. And then try and illuminate the rock art panel while you're taking some pictures of the Milky Way, ending up with the a picture that says, these ancient peoples really cared about the Milky Way because look where they put their rock art panel. Mm -hmm. Well, this may not entirely be true, and it, it did involve some technical difficulties, i.e. trudging out into the darkness with a flashlight and 30 pounds of photo gear, trying to find the place and then get back to the car afterwards. This became a little difficult, but we did get a bunch of interesting pictures and perhaps even originated that particular subgenre of, uh, of rock art documentation. Well, I have to tell you, Rick, I, I don't mean to, to jump in, but these pictures that, that are produced in that fashion are some of the most eye-catching, wonderful, mysterious, remarkable images I've ever seen. They're just jaw-dropping in the sense you're seeing the image, a prehistoric image of hundreds or thousands of years ago, illuminated and then associated with the cosmos, with the gorgeous Milky Way. It's phenomenal. I mean, give me a break. I'm... Uh, honored and, and blessed that you originated such a remarkable way to capture images of rock art. It's difficult. <laughs> it was very challenging. The problem is that are we, and here's a question that bothers me, is are we ascribing Western artistic values 
to an activity which was done by indigenous people here a long time ago. For example, is there any evidence outside of archaeoastronomy um, that people would wander out at night and look at the rock art panels and look at the sky and say, wow, that's really cool? Or is that something that we as Westerners have invented? I'm not sure the answer to that question is. And Rick, I'm not sure either. I wasn't there. <laughs> but, uh, I had a way back but, machine. <laughs> but, but I do know, incontrovertibly, that I've seen archaeoastronomical sites that exist in native California that, to me, are, are very uh, persuasive. And that the cosmos and the rising of the sun and the setting of the sun and also certain key celestial bodies like the moon and, of course, Venus uh, were central and, and prominent and, and very, very important and had metaphoric significance and deep meaning to Native people. And you know that too, Rick. Sure, of course I do. But one wonders whether they weren't just calendars at part of the time as well. <laughs> <laughs> because it was hard to get paper. So I went to the, uh, the night landscape portion of it and I found it more and more difficult to find people to go with me because uh, photographers who were used to uh, very adverse conditions would come out with me, but they wouldn't come out a second time. It must have been my sparkling personality. I don't know. But it was also kind of a, a difficult thing to do at 3 o'clock in the morning. So we moved on, and I was uh, hanging out with Eckhart Malatke, who is uh, well-known for many of his wonderful books on rock art in Arizona. And I was whining about the fact that I didn't know what to do next. I was tired of this stuff. What should I do? I wanted to do something that was worthwhile, but I didn't want to work real hard. Blah, 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 blah. So he said, why don't you do something about geoglyphs? I said, geoglyphs? What's a geoglyph? <laughs> well, thereby hands a tail. <laughs> so <laughs> what is a geoglyph? There's been lots of definitions. Uh, the one that I like that I've developed for myself is that it covers a lot of ground, but when you see one, you'll know it's, it's a geoglyph. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, okay, so I like to think of them as, and this is an unofficial personal definition, as intentional marking of the earth in a symbolic fashion, which has a meaning and can be passed on. And so geoglyphs, uh, unlike petroglyphs or even pictographs, are extremely fragile. They are perhaps the most fragile of all types of rock art. A petroglyph, that's going to survive a number of years. A pictograph, if it's well-placed in a cave or an overhang, the paint will survive. But a geoglyph, well, all you got to do is a cow walks by and kicks a rock, or someone drives their car uh, over one of the... Uh, one of the lines, you've lost a very valuable piece of cultural history that will never come back. So Rick, I, I believe, now tell me if I'm incorrect, because you have a geoglyph man on this particular episode, are most of the geoglyphs produced on what we might call desert pavement or no? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Okay. Because uh, there's a couple of different ways you can produce them. One please, of them te please tell us. One of them has to, well, okay, so geoglyph is kind of a basket term for all this stuff. Okay. Uh, some people call them intaglios, where you're, where you're removing material from a surface layer to expose a layer underneath. And correct me if I'm wrong, but most petroglyphs really involve some sort of intaglio process. Sure. Unlike pictographs where you're painting. So um, there's been some discussion by some people, like Dr. Malaki, who said a geoglyph is the same as an intaglio. You can't use them separate terms. He's probably right, but mm -hmm. I do anyways. Because a geoglyph can be things like rocks placed in a circle or other kinds of markings that don't involve the removal of material to form a pattern, but they will involve the addition of rocks or other kinds of materials to form a pattern. So you have the geoglyph as a basket term. 
You have the intaglio as a method of removing material. And then along with that, there's rock alignments, which uh, again are trails, which are marked by placement of rocks and other materials, and a few other kinds of uh, general ways of denoting these. Well, I do, I do believe that at least some of them certainly are in the intaglio arena in that there's a phenomenon called a desert pavement. And sure. I guess I guess this desert pavement, for those of you who've never seen it, is sort of a um, flattened area of desert varnished iron manganese coatings on rocks where the natural environment, the natural elements, has sort of dismembered all of the elements and it gets as hard as a rock, doesn't it? I mean, it's it's almost kind of a mosaic of intersecting stone, correct? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's uh, if you've ever walked across a, a beach and mm-hmm. you, your foot has gone through the crust on top of, of the sand and, uh, and ended up down in the sand below, that's a kind of a silly example of what desert pavement might exist of. Usually it's much harder, it's more cement-like, but it can be damaged, that's for sure. So anyways, desert pavement is one way it's done. Sometimes they will take rocks, which are dark colored, and they will scrape away material as though they were petroglyphs, except that they're mm. happening on a horizontal surface. Uh, nice. Some of these are can be seen in Pilot Knob near parts of uh, Yuma, Arizona, for example, on the California mm-hmm. side. Yeah. So there's a variety of different of types of geoglyphs, and there are different attempts to classify them. The ones that are of interest to me are the ones that were produced in an area, let's say, along the Colorado River Basin. And if you think about uh, Interstate 8, going from perhaps the Ocotillo area out past Yuma to perhaps Gila Bend, those were the nexus of the kinds of activities that are happening uh, in terms of geoglyph production by uh, past cultures in that area. I think there's been an estimate that there might be 120, 150 actual geoglyphs out there, some of which have been lost, some of which have yet to be refound. This happened over a period of several hundred years, I believe. This was the territory of, of human, Y-U-M-A-N speakers. Historically, I guess the Mojave Indians lived along both sides of the Colorado. Were there other groups as well historically that are in the vicinity of these geoglyphs? Yes, there are one or two other groups I think that were there um, whose name escapes me because I'm, but yeah. they, uh, they typically tend to be, there's a group called the Consolidated Tribes, which is an attempt to uh, incorporate all the different tribes that had, uh, that were uh, living on the eastern side of the Colorado from about Yuma up to about, almost up to Blythe. Right. And so those tribes uh, got together in, in an effort to, uh, of course, uh, exert more influence and to maintain their ancestral lands. I don't have a complete list in my head about who those would be, but those, certainly those three groups were very Yeah, uh, Yeah, very I know there's the Mojave. I know there's the, they call it the Kitsan, which is, I believe spelled K, excuse me, Q-U-E-C-H-A-N. I met with them when I was over there on the, in that general vicinity. The, the Southern Paiutes were also very close there in terms of the, the Chimawavi and right, the Havasupai. Right. The Havasupai right. and the Wallapai as well were in that vicinity. So we have these geoglyphs. We know that they are either rock alignments or the removal or addition of, of the rock along these realms. What else makes them distinctive? What is it, what's different about a geoglyph than a rock art site? Well, the particular interest that I developed was at the same time that this was happening, I suddenly became enamored of drones and drone technology and photography. 
And then I discovered that in the early 1980s, Harry Casey and uh, uh, the archaeologist he worked with out of Ocotillo were photographing these geoglyphs and trying to uh, develop a record of them. So Harry Casey would get into his 1946 Piper Cub. He would take off with uh, the other gentleman with him. They would fly over these uh, geoglyphs at relatively low altitudes, that being maybe a 1,000 feet or less. They would cut a hole in the floor of their aircraft and they would take pictures. And so this became a really interesting archive of what these looked like in the late 70s and early 80s. And that's that's when they did it, 1970s, 1980s. Was that with Jay Von Werloff? Yes, that's was that exactly who the other gentleman was. Right. Huh. And so is so is so is Jay von Werloff and, and who's the other gentleman? Harry Casey. And is he the, the famous person for the um, association with the great Mill Rock Art? He's the guy that flowed the plane and he financed that part of it. I see. And so um, he had an archive of photographs, a lot of them, that, that uh, he then donated to the uh, Desert Museum near Ocotillo. They actually have right. a, a facility now that's an archive of his photographs. And they, pu- they published a very nice book called Geoglyphs of the Desert Southwest. And as I was looking at these, I thought to myself, well, that's very nice. But how have they changed in the last 35 or 40 years? How many photographs did they, did they take? And how did you get access to that archive? Uh, David was kind enough, the uh, director of the museum was kind enough to let me uh-huh. get access to it. And I started looking through the various photographs and trying to find ones that I could use as a baseline and then fly over with a a drone, take some additional photographs, and then, in a true site steward fashion, compare and contrast the two photographs to try and catalog and perhaps even quantify how much damage had occurred in those intervening years. Were these photographs large or were they small or did they have enough detail for you to really assess the condition of them or no? It, it varied. Uh, they were shooting primarily 35 millimeter full frame film and mm-hmm. some two and a quarter, which uh, record a lot of detail. I mean, back in the good old film days, there was a lot of stuff there. They were being scanned. And the weak link in this whole process is the scanning because it's uh, you need high resolution scanning and it takes a while. But in general, the, the photographs were good and it was possible to uh, fly over some of these same geoglyphs, compare the recent photographs with the old ones, adjust the scale yeah. so it was similar, and you could say, hey, this guy is missing a foot. What happened to the head on this? How many geoglyphs and how many photographs did you have to evaluate the um, database and to use for your new condition assessment on these geoglyphs? We've probably covered 50 sites, I would say. Okay. And how many photographs were there of those sites? Well, what we typically would do would be we would launch a drone and we would be taking pictures continuously and usually in groups of five. And then we would take those and we would process them to bring out higher resolution uh, details about them. So we had a fair number of photographs. Uh, We discovered that the time to do this is morning or late afternoon. You don't want to go up there at 12 o'clock noon because you lose all your contrast. And so we learned very tricks along the way. We also used some mapping software to try and, and uh, develop some better maps of this location. And we even mm. went out at night to the Bryson Taglios, and I tried to do a couple of those when no one was looking. But, uh, so we, we had some interesting, uh, interesting database, and it turns out with a preliminary non-quantitative look that a lot of those sites have suffered damage. Oh, of course. I would think so. How many years has it been since those original photographs were taken? Uh, 40 years. But if you think about it, 40, 40 years isn't that 40 long. 40 years. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, but 40 years, there's been so many people and so much activity and so much, so much change, natural change, cultural change, et cetera, et cetera. So well, luckily, so, a lot of them are fenced and that helps yeah. a lot. Let me stop us there because I, I really want to get into the details of this and some of your, some of your uh, discoveries and uh, your details. But I think, I think we've gotten a sense of what a geoglyph is and, and what you were doing there. Uh, but I think we'll get into greater detail in the next segment about what the methodology was that you used to capture these photographs and how you compared them. So see you on the flip-flop, gang. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is uh, episode number 12. We're in the last segment. And we're here with Rick Coleman, who's speaking about his adventures and research into the giant geoglyphs, the intaglios, the gravel figures that exist along the Colorado, both in California and Arizona. Rick, give us a word picture of what these geoglyphs are all about. Okay, so we decided that we're going to go fly over the Parker Snake. The Parker Snake is fairly well interpreted. It's located near Parker, Arizona, and if you look on some maps, you'll find it. It's fenced, and it's in pretty pretty decent condition. So we found some pictures from the 1980s, both aerials and ground figures, of that uh, Harry and the other gentleman had taken. Javon Werloff. Oh, yeah. Javon Werloff, thank you very much. For some reason, that sticks in my, my head. Anyway, so we uh, decided we go out there. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It was a... Uh, Oh, 95 degrees or so forth. And we drove out there and we uh, set up outside of the actual fenced area and we launched our drone and we flew over and we started taking some pictures. The Parker snake is maybe a couple hundred feet long and fairly well incised into the desert pavement. And it's pretty easy to see. And it's better late in the afternoon because you get more contrast. And so we flew over it from several different directions and we got back and we uh, composited our images to get more detail, and we started comparing them with the images from the 1980s. And oh my God, the head's gone! What happened to the head? In the 1980s, the rattlesnake had a big head. It had two dark black stones for eyes, and it was well defined. But now it's there's nothing there. It's just a, a body ending with uh, some dirt along the edges of the snake in the 1980s. The uh, whoever was doing it had put some dark, sandy lines along the edge to further emphasize the sinuous body of the actual snake. Now, whether this is original from uh, antiquity or whether it's been done recently, it's pretty hard to say. And also, the tail was well defined, 
so when we looked at our images from the recent overflight, the dark lines along the body were gone, the tail was not well defined, the eyeballs were gone, and the head was gone, and, the, and in the original photographs, the head actually had a representation of a uh, snake's tongue coming out, you know, the forked tongue kind of deal. That was all gone. And apparently it was gone before the area was fenced. That's a, that's a uh, hypothesis on my part. I have no idea. Because I don't have any images from halfway through. I have the 1980s stuff and I have our stuff. But it was damaged. And uh, if you were to reconstruct that image, would it be the same as the original one? I don't know. That's not my uh, not my not my thing. But the fact of the matter is that these uh, artifacts, these cultural resources, are extremely fragile, and something must have happened to it before it was fenced, or somebody came along and decided it might be fun to kick some stones around. Hard to say. Do you think that the native people, as they did in Australia, and and I know that they did this also in my own research area in the Kosos, refreshed or somehow? Uh, went back to those images and repacked or somehow curated them to uh, make sure that they were powerful and magical and energetic. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, there's no doubt. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you another short story, which is Please. we were out at the Blythe Attaglios one Saturday morning, and we are going to, uh, to look around and make some measurements and so forth. And there was a, a group of people wandering down the trail back towards the parking area with uh, sticks and, and cape and uh, you know, brooms and shovels and so forth and holding some uh, smoldering sage at the beginning and the end of the line. And it turned out that those people had been uh, there doing a ceremony. There were some consolidated tribes across the river and they felt that they had a right to maintain those geoglyphs, the famous Blythe and Taglios, because they felt it was part of their cultural past. And this probably makes the BLM a little crazy because they're trying to preserve it as it is, while the native tribes are trying to put it back to where they think it was. So yes, the answer is yes, there is a maintenance function taking place, but not that many places, I don't think. Do you do you know or do you have a, a sort of hypotheses or guesses about what that snake meant to the people that crafted that image? I couldn't say. I mean, I've read accounts of what people think it might have meant. What, 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 do, what do people say that that particular uh, snake, I believe it w- was a rattlesnake, wasn't it? Sure. Well, yeah. as I'm sure you know, Dr. Gold, the rattlesnake follows a very important place in the uh, mythology and spirituality of the tribes of this area. Uh-huh. And so uh, what was unusual, however was to see the full body representation. As, of, as often as not, uh, they're represented by stick figures or, the, or maybe even lightning bolt lines or other kinds of uh, cross-hatch mm-hmm. lines. Yes. But these, this was a full-bodied image. And it had a head and it had a, eyes and, a, and a, a tongue and so forth. So the question is, is that, from what area does that come from? What era? Is that from the original area, whatever that may be, was that a recent addition, let's say 50, 100 years ago? It's been obliterated now, so it can't have been too recent. It's for you guys, I think, to say what the actual, where that came from, what era it might have come from, and what's represented by it. Nice, nice. So tell us a bit more about your project and your discoveries. How many geoglyphs did you in turn discover? And um, what was your assessment in terms of their size, their 
diversity? What was the subject matter? Well, we didn't actually discover anything. We were given uh, information by various, a couple of different parties and permission, at least originally by the BLM, to go out and fly some of these sites. Okay. And they were, typically they would be anywhere from 50 to a couple hundred feet long in okay. terms of size. We did not do measurements at first because we didn't think of it. And someone during one of the presentations says, well, how long is it? And we went, <laughs> uh, see, I think we need a better experimental plan. So, um, Anyway, so uh, one of the things I'd like to do one of these days is go back and remeasure some of these. And we can do this fairly accurately from the air. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's kind of on the books. And we have stuff we haven't published yet. I have a website that hasn't been completed yet. And we hope to disseminate some of this information to anyone who's interested. How many geoglyphs have you so documented at this point? <sighs> Over 50, maybe 55, something like that. Were and, you able uh, to find all the ones that... Harry Casey and Jay Von Werloff had documented. No. And okay. a couple how, of many, just, how, many, yeah. how many are missing or how many have you uh, not been able to find? Well, part of it is we don't have a good list of sites from the uh, Harry Casey Van Werloff era. We okay. have a, they have a uh, archive of photographs, which are notated and very carefully preserved. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure if there's an actual site list per se. Okay. Plus they, uh, they did uh, branch out to rock alignments out in the, uh, Death Valley area and, and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of information there. Quite frankly, going out and visiting these things, are, the, the money, it's, it's expensive. We have to cover our own travel expenses and buy the hardware and so forth. And we gladly share the information. But we're at the point now where we're kind of at diminishing returns. The okay. first 50 are the, are the good ones. And the next 50, well, it's hard to say. Okay. But you, you did inventory at least 50 geoglyphs along the, along the Colorado. And you, you were saying there's probably probably that number or more additional? There's, there's probably, two, according to Boma Johnson, it's probably 150 perhaps. Ah. And uh, we covered the area from Ocotillo to, to Gila Bend, east and west, and then from Yuma up to Blythe, north and south. And uh, that seems to be the nexus for all this activity. Now, have you published this material or have you, is there an archive per se that is available to the general public to see these images or no? There will be. I mean, we're going to put some of this stuff out on a website that we're building right now. Great. And so they'll be able to see the the original Harry Casey and, and Jay photographs side by side with the uh, modern ones. And we hope to have a facility where you can slide one over the other and easily, more easily see what the changes have been. And I'm hoping that somewhere along the line, someone within BLM can say, hey, this is an interesting tool. Maybe we can use it for policymaking. If we can only spend so much money on fences, where should they go? How many of the geoglyphs would you say were fenced and how many are not? We, we can't make a fair assessment. Okay. Uh, but I would say that of the ones we visited, maybe a third of them seem to be fenced. Okay. How many are fenced now? Uh, about that similar number. In other words, back, back in the early 80s, a lot of them were not fenced. Okay. And But, but they are now and they're interpreted they and, and they're protected and that's, okay. that's all it takes is a chain link fence about three or four feet high, and you've okay. eliminated most of the damage, I think. Well, good, good. So would your recommendation at this point be to put fences around many more, or would you uh, leave them uh, alone and just let them be, uh, you know, natural? Is which if, if they're left alone, they will degrade. They will degrade, okay. Someone so, will drive over them, a, a cow will... will even will by accident. So even you're, by accident. So I think your recommendation would definitely be to protect them by fencing. 
Yeah, and a lot of them are. I mean, along with the Colorado, there's a number of sites up on the bluffs above the actual Colorado on the western side. I when see. you get there, you'll see they're fenced, and that's okay. great. You know, so. What do the native people believe about this? Are they happy that they are fenced and protected? Is that something that they they feel is acceptable to them? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm in a good position to judge that. The having okay. had not that much contact. Yeah. But, uh, it seems to me like preservation is better than not preser- no preservation with the idea that many people I talked to, many tribes in the New Mexico area, weren't yeah. all that excited about the white man's interest in their, their uh, rock art. Right. And, and I, I've, I've seen that myself. In fact, sometimes in terms of Native people, they, they tell me they would rather have the uh, images just be left alone and not protected or not viewed or not made knowledgeable in any way. I would presume that the BLM has put interpretive signs occasionally so that people understand where they are and what, what is there. Is that correct? Sure. I mean, the obvious example of that is, uh, is uh, the Blast and Taglios, which are quite okay. famous. But, you know, if you go talk to uh, the Parker Snake or some areas around there, there's a sign and it will say, monitored by site stewards and blah, 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 in an attempt to let people know that people are looking at these areas and please don't mess them up. They're really culturally significant. I see. Do they attempt to uh, communicate the, the nature, the spirituality, the, the sacredness of these sites and explain perhaps a bit more about the cosmology or the religious traditions associated with these images? Some of them do. And it's it's welcome information, but you don't know if it's going to be changed twenty years from now if some sure. information becomes available. Sure. But yeah, they, they, these all meant, these meant something to somebody. They weren't just random marks. They weren't kids shuffling on a on a blackboard. Although I have to give you one 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 final comment, which is that sure. in some cases, stuff which it looks like it's intentional is not. For example, these there's a dance circle, a dance area out in the. Uh, uh, near south of Ocotillo, where uh, the peoples would have regular dances. Uh, two, three hundred people would, would uh, show up and go for their dances. And as a consequence of that, they left tracks in the sand, in the dirt. Mm-hmm. And at first glance, you go, oh, wow, look at that. What does that design mean? Well, what the design means is that several <laughs> hundred people dance there every three to four weeks for like uh-huh. 50 or 100 years. And they, and they wore a design into the sand, which has about as much meaning, perhaps, as a line dance does for modern people. So it's not always something which is really super-duper spiritual. Sometimes it's just an artifact. Interesting. Interesting. And you know all this stuff. So. Well, <laughs> well, no, I, I, did, I never heard anything about the dancers. That's fantastic. The only yeah, thing, I, I, I was honored and, and blessed to work with Boma Johnson early on in my career. Right. But I haven't seen him for decades and I, I am familiar with some of Boma's publications and some of Jay Von Werloff's, but what I find most interesting, I think, about the Mojave, as much as I understand their religious cosmology and their spiritual precepts, is they, they wrote their religious con- conceptions on the land. So in other words, their cosmology, their worldview is represented in stone on the landscape. And that's probably a piece of the puzzle in terms of this extensive manifestation of these geoglyph pictures that exist along the Colorado. Perhaps you could share what the subject matter is. You mentioned there was a snake. Are there any other figures that we might understand 
or are they all abstract? Uh, actually, very few of them are abstract per se. They usually have, uh, for example, the Bicentaglios, which are quite famous. They, uh, every one of those figures represents perhaps part of their mythology in terms of their uh, mythical supernatural beings, and mythical supernatural beings, and so forth. Uh-huh. And you, I, I found that in a lot of different locations, except the Schaefer. I think it's the Schaefer Dance Circle, where they, uh, where if you look at it from the air, it looks like an important, an important pattern, but it's not. And let me close my end by simply saying these people in general did not have the facility to fly up 400 feet, 500 feet and look down. In some cases, there might be a hill going over or something. And you, and the people start wondering, well, how did they make these uh, strange and unusual uh, designs when they couldn't actually uh, fly up in the sky and, uh, and look down and see where they were going? And so that gave rise to the alien visitation Chariot of the Gods thing, which is mm-hmm. a, it, it's been a problem with this because it actually it, it hides the real meaning behind some of these things and brings in a, a woo element, which is not really welcome. Right. Uh, and for example, in uh, Ocotillo, there's a very nice medicine wheel up on a hill, which has been, let's say, adopted by people who are, may call them new age spiritualists, and mm-hmm. they, they show up there and they change the design. And they think they have a right to do so. And that's, I don't know about that. I don't think they do. So in other words, we have a, have an issue with co-opting some of the traditional religious manifestations of by non-Native Americans in terms of trying to follow some new age kinds of concepts. So it sounds like a cautionary note. Well, we have just a minute left. Any last minute sign-offs or recommendations or reflections to uh, close us out, Rick? Well, let me just say that on the website we're building, the cover photo is the Ocotillo Medicine Wheel. And you take a look at it and you tell me whether you think it's ancient or recent and what's been changed. It's interesting to look at it. Remarkable. Thank you, Rick Coleman. I'm honored to have you as our guest today. It's a lot of fun. Thank you for having me on. And uh, see you next week out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Alan Garfinkel, signing off. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Have a good week. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rockart. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com.
Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Fro.